Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, as always, we have a great show for you. We'll be talking with Elizabeth Lev, art historian, best-selling author, international speaker, and this I need to ask her about, certified sommelier. <laughs> Uh, She teaches Baroque Renaissance and Christian art at Duquesne University in Rome. We're going to be talking about her new book, Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. And this is a wonderful book. It's got theology, it's got history, and of course it's got art. And um, I was looking through it and it is absolutely fascinating. But before we get into this, as always, we want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station. Also, welcome our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. We are live this morning, so if there's something going on in your parish you want to share with everyone, Feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. I'm joined this morning in the studio by both Dr. Thaddeus Romanski and Dennis Maka. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Deacon Mike. It is great to be here, and it's great to have you here. And it is an absolutely gorgeous day today. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I can't get over that... This is the first of December. Yeah, we think it's... about snow. We think about ice. We think about cold weather. And that's in February. That's right. Don't mention February. <laughs> it's going to be a heck of a February. Oh yes. But uh, as for now, it is a gorgeous day, and um, we've been since we've been going through the year of Saint Joseph, mm-hmm. and again. Um, Seven days left. And the book we're going to be talking about, about St. Joseph, is a nice way to, near the end of the year of St. Joseph, coming at the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Yes. And, um, but since we're still in the year of St. Joseph, we still have the opportunity to get a plenary indulgence. Mm -hmm. So why don't we open with the prayer to St. Joseph? Indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O blessed St. Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction to obtain from me all the knowledge and love of the sacred heart of Jesus, and finally, to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. Amen. 
And as I mentioned, this comes with a plenary indulgent if, of course, we follow the normal requirements of gaining a plenary indulgence, which include going to confession, going to Mass, and receiving the Eucharist, and freeing ourselves from all attachments to sin. Mm, it's that third one that's uh, the most the, difficult. That's always a sticking point. because kicker. We tend to be very much attached to our own personal little sins. Yes. And um, it's a lifelong struggle to try to free ourselves of that. But this is some encouragement to try, right, that Holy Mother Church gives us, right, Deacon Mike? Some encouragement to keep striving. Exactly. Right? And it's a constant reminder, reminder that God has a much higher opinion of us than we yes, do. Yes, And, and he uh, desires us to be with him. Yes, and uh, he thinks we can do it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which a lot of times when we feel that we can't, it's nice to be reminded that God thinks we can. Yes. Since we're going to be talking uh, about the book Silent Night in our second section, I thought rather than focusing on St. Joseph, mm -hmm. in this first section— I'd like to talk about St. Andrew, whose feast day was yesterday. Mm -hmm. and Big feast day in our household. I can imagine. But the fascinating thing to me about St. Andrew is the fact that it's his brother that's famous. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that his brother is St. Peter, Peter, who was the first pope of the church. But... How he got to be Jesus' disciple is what makes Andrew so important mm -hmm. in the church. Because Andrew being an, a disciple of John the Baptist right. was the first one to see Jesus, to follow Jesus, to get to know Jesus, and to hurry to his brother to announce that I have seen the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just imagine if that hadn't happened. Peter might not have met Jesus. And I think what I find so fascinating is we forget how important evangelization is. The importance of us having met Jesus, announcing this to everyone we meet. I have met the Messiah. This is one of the things that links this to the season of Advent. Advent is about preparation. But unlike Lent, throughout the readings of Advent, we have this undercurrent of joy. Are we joyful about what we're preparing for? And I don't mean Christmas lights and buying presents. Right. I'm talking about meeting the Messiah. And do we share that joy with others when we realize what the source of that joy is? St. Andrew couldn't contain himself. Mm -hmm. I have met the Messiah. Peter, come with me. You have got to meet him. How often do we do that? I think what it's making me think about, Deacon Mike, is sometimes... Maybe instead of uh, taking the apologetics tack, we need to just communicate, like you're saying, that joy that I love my I love my Catholic faith. Come and see, come and check it out, come and find out, 
and let let your personal you know your personal witness do the talking. You know, Pope John Paul II said, "What the world is in need of um, in these days is witnesses." Yes, and uh, this is exactly the point Pope Francis made. You know, nobody joins a church filled with sourpusses. You know, right? Where is that joy? And right. Saint Peter telling us, you know, right. at all times be prepared to give a reason for your hope, right? A reason for your joy, right? Well, if we have no joy, how can we explain the reason for it? Yeah. And so as we prepare for Christmas, I challenge all our listeners to be an example of joy to the people we meet and be prepared to demonstrate why we feel this joy while standing in line at Walmart waiting to check out if we're filling up at a gas station and someone is at the pump with us, if we're just decorating our house, if we're preparing food, all the things that we do to prepare for Christmas, let there be joy in that. So often we look at all these things as chores. I have to do this. I have to do that. Oh, I'm not ready yet because I still have to do that. I would say that the only thing that we have to do this Advent season is find the joy in preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And to share that joy with everyone we meet. I cannot imagine the feeling St. Andrew had when he met Jesus, realizing that everything that his people had been preparing for Mm -hmm. had finally come, that he was standing in the presence of the Messiah and couldn't contain himself to go tell his brother. Well, each one of us should have exactly that experience every time we come out of Mass. I've met the Messiah. Let me tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Let me show you the joy it has brought to my life. I've always said that, and this goes along with what you were saying about the St. Pope John Paul the Great, how often... Are we witnesses? Yeah. We're really great at explaining things to people. And we want to explain things to people. How often do we show what a difference it makes in our life by how we act? And this is really, really important during the season of Advent. We live in a secular world. Christmas is often co-opted by people who want to make it into something that it's not. Christmas is about meeting the Messiah. Advent is about preparing to meet the Messiah. If we have no joy in that preparation, we lose the meaning of Christmas. And if we as Christians lose the meaning of Christmas, how can we expect the secular world 
have any idea what it is. It is our job this Advent season to show the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of Advent in everything that we do, in everything that we say, in our very being. We don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to try to explain everything. We have to demonstrate that we have found joy, that we have met the Messiah, and that he's changed our life. Because meeting Jesus doesn't change our life, we're not really Christians. Yeah. I think that, you know, every time we are given a feast day, by the church. It's sometimes interesting to look at when that feast day occurs. And I thought that as close as Feast of St. Andrew is to the beginning of Advent, especially this year, doesn't always happen. Right. But is a reminder for all of us that there should be excitement in Advent. Yes, it's a penitential season, but it's a season of joy, a season of hope, and leading up to a season of love. And that's our faith in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. That's who we are called to be as people. That's why we have the candles on the Advent wreath, to remind us of hope, of peace, of joy, of love. But all of us as Christians demonstrate all four of those throughout the season of Advent and into the season of Christmas. Enough of my talking. All of us have probably already put up our Advent wreath. All of us have probably started our Christmas decorations. This is the first year we actually got the candles up on time. We got a couple of sprigs of green. I can't say there's a full wreath around those candles, but we, we start our Advent prayers on time this year for the first time in a long time. Well, I think that this is one of the things that, you know, we get so excited about this. And again, we struggle with the idea that, you know, we have to do stuff. Let's focus on the important stuff. In Dennis's case, he knew that the prayers were important. Even if the whole wreath isn't there. Yeah. Let us always be mindful that the decorations are secondary. Faith, hope, joy, and love. Those are important. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back on the other side talking to Elizabeth Lev about Silent Night, a history of St. Joseph as depicted in art. Don't go away. All this I can. And as promised, we're back. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. And as promised, in a moment, we're going to be talking with Elizabeth Lev, an art historian, best-selling author, international speaker, and I'm going to have to ask her about this, a certified sommelier. She t teaches Baroque, Renaissance, and Christian art at Duquesne University in Rome. 
and she has just written a wonderful book called Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. Elizabeth, how are you? You're in Rome, so you're quite a ways away from us, and there's going to be a slight delay in our conversation, but we're going to make do. How are you? One, I'm great. Everything is wonderful here in Rome. We have our first day in December. The Christmas tree is up in St. Peter's Square, just a few blocks from my house, and all is well with the world. What's it like living that close to the Vatican? It's a joy. It's really a wonderful thing to be able to walk down and go to Angelus on Sundays to pass through St. Peter's Square on your way going and coming from dinner, to have really the hub of all of the pilgrims who come here uh, passing by. It's really a very, very special experience. Is the current pandemic still affecting things around the Vatican, or is that more or less starting to die down? No, I'm afraid we are having a bit more of the tightening of restrictions. We're all on pins and needles, hoping that we will uh, make it through Christmas without being told we can't gather with our families. Um, I'm afraid we are still uh, very much in uh, we are still very much in pandemic mode here in Italy. I'm sorry to hear that because I can imagine that it sort of ca- uh, causes a difficulty for people wanting to go go to the Vatican, even just to listen to the Pope before the Angelus. Uh, uh, on Sundays, you know, crowd control, you know, spacing, masks, all these things. Yes, yes. Well, as, uh, as the Holy Father said, Joseph is the saint for times where things that are bigger than us affect us, but we still have to find our way to play our role in the history of salvation. I like that. Now, Before we go into your book, tell us a little bit about yourself, especially uh, how did you get interested in art and especially, I mean, that's a pretty broad uh, field, Baroque, uh, Renaissance, and um, all the different forms of art. How did you get interested in all that? Well, in many ways, I think I've always been interested in art. I was a child who loved stories and biographies and mythology and uh, eventually discovered that there were brilliant painters and sculptors who managed to tell those stories visually. And so it's always been a very attractive thing to me. I guess I was just born for picture books. And um, then uh, I uh, got my undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago studying Renaissance art, which is what brought me to Italy. But when I went to do my graduate degree at University of Bologna, I found myself really swept away by the majesty of Baroque art, which is a period that was basically born here in Rome. And so I live really just a few minutes from one of the greatest examples of Baroque art in the world, which is St. Peter's Basilica. Now, one of the things that, uh, as a art student, you have probably had the understanding, coming from a Christian background, that you know so much of Christian art is intended 
to basically be a form of evangelization, of teaching. And how did this play into your um, understanding of art? Well, for me, it has a very personal and powerful effect. When I began studying art, I was much more interested in paintings of Greek mythology. So I was far more interested in the Botticelli's Venus than the Madonna of the Magnificat. And um, it it was only after I began really a serious uh, study to realize that the art of the Renaissance, when people put energy, the real energy, the real money, the real efforts went into telling these religious stories. And then amazingly, what I began to discover is that the religious stories, the stories of the faith are so much deeper. They're so much richer for art, for artists. So basically, the image of a Venus, the goddess of love, might inspire artists up to a certain point. But the way that we can depict the image of Jesus's passion is really so much more uh, has so much more nuance. And of course, because at the end of the day, it's an image that tells us about truth, the truth of the gospel. It's just an infinitely more rewarding thing to study. So I really had something of a personal conversion way back when from um, studying art that was not religious or more secular to realizing that I, I'm really not interested unless it's a story of the sacred. Before we get into the book a little bit more, uh, one thing about your biography that struck me is that you are a sommelier, certified sommelier. How did this come about? Sort of different from art. That different, actually. It is uh, it is something that requires uh, human uh, cooperation with nature. So great art is human beings who are trying to represent or draw out or to to in many ways in the Renaissance they're trying to perfect nature. And wine is taking the natural activity of a grape, which is to ferment and then to work with that natural activity of the grape and turn it into, to freeze that perfect moment and to turn it into something that is durable as well as um, delicious. And so um, it really is a very, it's a very, very interesting topic, just the history of wine and and the way that wine um, interacts particularly with our faith. But I got interested, mostly because I live in Italy, where we have 450 varietals, so you can't get away from wine in this country, but mostly because I teach um, at Duquesne University for you know young people who would come to Rome, and in Europe often seems like a country without a drinking age. And so it was really a way to try to explain to the students about how we view things like wine in this country, meant to be taken with food, meant to be uh, part of a source of conviviality, its role in the story of our, our story of our salvation, and so I got very, very, very interested. And took a, a two-year, basically associate's degree in um, in becoming a sommelier. And one of the most beautiful things you learn when you really study wine is how to slow down and discern your senses. And I think that's not only important for wine; it's important for art, and it's important for the faith to really think about 
to be mindful of what you're doing and what you're experiencing. And then even better if you can recount it and share it with others. That is actually a fascinating explanation because the way you put it, you know, with beautiful art, sometimes we just have to sit there and take it in a little at a time. And the way mm-hmm. you explained that with wine, it's sort of the same thing. You know, it's got flavors of cherry, of charcoal, of, you know, all these things. But you don't get that, you know, unless you sit there and savor it. And so exactly, that is absolutely wonderful. All right. Now, let's get a little bit more into your book, Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. One thing you mentioned is that the book owes a whole lot to uh, Pope Francis. How did you mean that? Well, it was, first of all, first and foremost, uh, Pope Francis's declaration of the year of St. Joseph that spawned the numerous articles and research and reading and looking that eventually turned into uh, the book of the Silent Night. But even more so, I think, uh, Pope Francis's uh, letter or his his, his writing on St. Joseph, Patris Corde, A Father's Heart, is really a, an amazing way of taking what we already know about Joseph, what we've heard from the Magisterium, what we've heard from other saints, but really projecting the importance of St. Joseph into the here and now. And it really made me want to show people how Joseph has been so magnificently represented in different moments, in different eras, and different challenges of the Church, and really to take up the same challenge that Pope Francis is offering us, to think about how we can make Joseph go to Joseph in our own day and age. Now, you also mentioned that in art, Really, prior to the 5th century, there wasn't a whole lot of attention paid to St. Joseph. And yet, now, uh, you quote Pope Francis as saying, after Mary, the mother of God, no saint is mentioned more frequently in the papal magisterium than Joseph, her spouse. So there's been a turnaround. Why was he not that much of a focal point early? Say the least. To say the least, there's been a turnaround. Yes, Joseph, I, he, he, as a saint who has not one word uh, attributed to him in the Gospels, he has 15 mentions, and he's gone by chapter 2 of Matthew and Luke. I, he, I mean, he, does, he didn't really give a—didn't leave a lot for artists and people to work with here— But um, most importantly, in the early years of the Church, particularly while evangelizing the Roman Empire, so Gentiles, there was a tremendous emphasis that needed to be placed on the virginity of Mary and the divine paternity of Jesus. And so in many ways, Joseph, our silent knight in the sense of chivalrousness, steps off stage so that we can focus on the most important figures in the story, the virgin who bore a child and the child who was man and God. And then in the fifth century, once Christianity is the sole religion of the empire, we have a Christian empire, um, it, 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 it becomes time for Joseph to finally make his appearance, which he does, of course, in St. Mary Major. Now, uh, when you describe your intent for the book. You say this book aims to accompany the reader through the artistic wonderland that is Josephine iconography. 
Flesh that out a little bit. That's well, that's exactly what I intend to do. There is an amazing number of pictures. So, you know, when we think of our, when people think of their favorite artists, right? So we have Caravaggio, everyone loves Caravaggio, or Michelangelo, or Raphael, Titian. We have pictures of Joseph by all of these superstar artists. We have pictures of Joseph by artists whose names we don't know, but are, 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 are remarkable. Joseph doing kooky little things like running off looking for midwives. We have colossal Josephs by Murillo standing looking off for danger. We have Josephs made in the Cusco school of, 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 of Peru and Bolivia. There are so many different images of Joseph that it takes some navigation to understand that they are all facets of this same extraordinary diamond in the rough that the church has been polishing and polishing and studying and, 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 and cutting for the past 1,600 years. You mentioned St. Mary Major, and St. Mary Major is one of the favorite churches of the popes in Rome. Um, it has such a prominent uh, role, uh, I mean, in portraying Joseph in the mosaics and everything, and that's 430 A.D., and so, you know, that's fairly early in the history of the church. So does that sort of lay the groundwork for that renaissance of uh, St. Joseph in art? Well, it's an interesting situation that Joseph makes this sort of first appearance, at least as far as we know in the history of art, the first appearance is in the triumphal arch of the Church of St. Mary Major. And I think it is actually not a coincidence that he appears there, because we have this dogmatic Church teaching of Mary Theotokos that takes place in 431 in the Council of Ephesus, where we have now established, once and for all, Mary is the God-bearer. And so now, because we have this pronouncement, we have this teaching, we have a church being dedicated to the Theotokos, we can now show her consort, we can show the foster father of Christ, Joseph, and so he appears five times. As you saw, all of a sudden he just bursts out of the starting gate, and he's peppered all over that triumphal arch, acting as a go-between and a protector. He seems very much, he takes on the role of consort, he introduces Jesus to the Gentiles, he stands before and protectively around his wife. It's really quite a remarkable uh, appearance. And yet, immediately after St. Mary Major, his appearance changes again, and he becomes a, a kind of a small figure huddled in the corner of nativity paintings. So he has to wait again. He has sort of this almost like a false start, and then he has to wait another 500 years before he really erupts on the scene. And that's something that really struck me on the image of the nativity icon in the monastery of St. Catherine's, um, the image of Joseph in that icon, he's sitting off almost like an outcast in the corner. There are a great many of those images. It's really quite striking how many of these sad little Josephs sitting in a corner and amazingly enough turned away from the scene. So can you imagine like being present at, you know, God becoming man and the nativity and it'd be like, yeah, okay, well, I'm just going to sit in the other room and, you know, watch the animals. I mean, it always seems to be like watching the camels or the horses or something in the distance. And so it's a, this is again, uh, a way of trying to incorporate 
Joseph into the scene, but ensure that there is a kind of a sense that he is not the father, he's not the biological father of the child. And so they keep him kind of uh, uh, secluded. They also show him as very elderly. And they also focus a great deal on what they call this, this troubled Joseph. He always looks a little upset about something. And this is connected to uh, apocryphal stories about Joseph's worries. How am I going to take care of this family? What am I going to do? It's the sense of Joseph who, who's, who, who, has, who is overwhelmed in a certain sense by the awesome responsibility he's been given. I want to remind our listeners that we are talking with Elizabeth Lev about her new book, Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. And you just mentioned the fact that in a lot of these icons and uh, works of art, it depicts Joseph as elderly. And, but that, too, was in part to make a theological point, trying to explain the mention of brothers and sisters in scriptures. To some extent, what happens in the apocryphal, so the non-canonical stories of, uh, of, of the infancy of Christ, is that, it's, that one of the stories that circulates to try to explain Joseph in, 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 in a way that the world of the 4th and 5th century will understand um, is to say that he was an older man who had already had children, who had already been married. So kind of the idea of somehow suggesting that Joseph was sort of tired of you know, marriage, and he could just be a doddering old husband to this young woman who was endowed with extraordinary purpose. And you know, that, 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 that circulates for a little bit, but it's something that very early on, uh, some of our great theologians, some of our great church, some of our great saints really object to. And so that, that idea of Joseph's uh, other children is pretty much excised from um, considerations very early on in, 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 if you will, Josephology, in the study of Joseph. And really, by the time Bernard of Clairvaux comes along, he's really advocating for a Joseph who just made a vow of chastity, just married it. And so that this is a man who is a figure of self-mastery. And so for a thousand years, the images of Joseph have really been building more and more and more on the image of self-mastery, although there is some remnant of the older-looking Joseph that kind of has fallen into iconography. And so sometimes the image of a sort of a gray-haired Joseph just remains, although the point about Joseph is that this is a man who, who, who was perfectly capable of practicing self-control, no matter what his age was. Now, there is a difference between the perception of Joseph or and the depiction of Joseph between the Eastern and the Western Church. Why was that? Well, the the the, the Eastern Church maintains uh, maintains more of a fixed image of uh, of Joseph, and actually, there are many ways more sophisticated uh, regarding the thinking of Joseph than the, than the Western Church. The Western Church, on the other hand, is always sort of experimenting and, and delving into different possibilities of iconography for Joseph. And this is closely, closely connected to the way that the Western Church's Western Church uses art, art not merely as a 
teaching tool strictly for scripture. So we're going to sort of enter into this mystery through this image, which is a scriptural image. But it uses art also for um, uh, uh, teaching or persuading of certain church teachings. So, for example, uh, the Western Church will, 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 will call on St. Joseph to assist it uh, during its during periods when it wants to teach about the art of dying well. So we'll see a very elderly Joseph sitting in his deathbed. Then they want Joseph to be uh, a kind of um, role, model for, role model for the papacy. So you'll see Joseph dressed up to look exactly like Peter. Or you'll want Joseph to be um, a role model of marriage, and you'll see Joseph of varying ages in the midst, however, of being sort of the ardent suitor and the husband of Mary. So it's very, very interesting interesting how the West creates such uh, a multiplicity of images of Joseph. Now, one of those multiplicity of images came during the Crusades, where the image of Joseph sort of adapted to the times? One of my favorite images of St. Joseph, um, and really the one that ultimately became the inspiration for the title of the book, is from a capital in uh, the cathedral of Alton. So it's the, in, in the cathedral of Alton, which is a Romanesque church, which is built in the wake of the Crusades, um, has these very elaborately carved tops of the columns. The capital of the column is elaborately carved, and the very, very striking one, the one that just kind of that, that made it for me, was an image of St. Joseph dressed up as a knight. So he's got his armor on, he's carrying a sword, and he's leading the Madonna and child on their donkey to safety. And it's just, it's, it's that was, that was the one. Uh, now, that's a completely different picture than the one we were presented with in the Carmelite Church of Santa Maria della Vittoria in Rome. And that has sleeping, Joseph. When did this sleeping thing come in? Because we to this day, still have Sleeping Joseph images. Sleeping Joseph is actually um, a, a, a part of St. Bernard of Clairvaux's thinking about Joseph. He really puts forth a beginning of a teaching and a study of St. Joseph, and uh, in it, he compares, in, in, his, in his discussion of St. Joseph, uh, the, the spouse of Mary, he discusses uh, Joseph's similarity to the patriarch Joseph. And one of the things he's really trying to draw out is, A, the regality of Joseph, as he comes from a line of kings, and two, his similarities to Joseph the patriarch in the sense that he's a chaste man. Joseph refuses the wife of Potiphar, and, and, and Joseph the carpenter lives chastely with his wife Mary. And three, and the most important, the, uh, their, their way of communicating and understanding the divine through dreams. And so the sleeping Joseph is a, is a way of reminding us that this man has numerous occasions of angelic communication. And as a matter of fact, later on in the, 7th, in the 16th century, Gracian, one of the spiritual directors of St. Teresa Avila, will make the argument of St. Joseph as an angelic man. But that's an evolution of that idea of sleeping Joseph. This sleeping Joseph is really this a way of underscoring that, yes, he seems like the regular guy, and he's a carpenter, and he's perhaps the least glamorous 
of the Holy Family, as it were, but he is the man who communicates through with, with angels. Angels come to speak to him. So God speaks and his sends his personal messengers to speak to Joseph. So it gives him a very privileged way of understanding the mind of the Eternal Father. In your chapter on the relationship with St. Joseph or the image of St. Joseph and the mendicant orders, the notion of Joseph as this truly chaste man would have been one that the mendicant orders would have been able to embrace. Oh, absolutely. And the mendicant orders are very interested in in two aspects of uh, Joseph. One, that he is an active man. So this old man curled up in the corner, gazing off in the other direction. They don't want to hear about it. Bernardino of Siena really doesn't want to hear it. And so they imagine him as young, active, and virile. This is a man who managed to find a place for his wife to give birth on the fly. This is a man who managed to pick up and move the family to Egypt and get them there safely, start another trade. So they love this idea of, uh, of, uh, of, of, this, of this active Joseph. And then the other thing they really like about Joseph is that he is the witness to Jesus's humanity. So in, in the Byzantine art, uh, we have a great deal of emphasis on the divinity of Christ. The mendicants, particularly St. Francis, take a growing interest in thinking very closely about the implications of Jesus' human experience. And the person who really sees the human experience and he uh, um, uh, assists the human experience of Christ is Joseph. It's Joseph's job to make sure there's food on the table. It's Joseph's job to make sure that there's a roof over his head. And in the earliest relic of St. Joseph is actually the, the hosen, the, 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 the boot or sock or, or, or trousers that he wore that he removes cuts up in order to create in order to create swaddling clothes. So this is the man who who is dealing with kind of the glamorous part of 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 the Son of God, the gold, the frankincense and myrrh, but this is the man who's dealing with the practicalities. How am I going to make sure that there's dinner on the table? How am I going to teach this boy a trade? How do I make sure he's clothed after he's born? And I really was struck by when you were talking about that, you know, Mary sort of represents the contemplation of Christ's divinity, where Joseph is more the contemplation of Christ's humanity. And I'm always struck by the images of, you know, young Jesus in a carpentry shop with Joseph showing him the trade and the idea that, you know, Jesus would be learning something. And so often we lose sight of that part of his uh, personality. I think that's a very lovely, um, it, it really appears for the most part in the 17th century. It's the Baroque era that really gets interested in these images of Joseph and Jesus alone in the workshop. So Georges de la Tour does these lovely pictures of, of Joseph who's working away at night, and there's young Jesus holding a candle. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it really is, it, it also is sort of beautifully played out, even though it was by implication in Mel Gibson's passion. If you remember those flashback scenes where Jesus is busy plying this trade, and by implication we understand that Jesus is making tables, he's making chairs because his father taught him. And so that, that sense of Joseph's uh, uh, sharing his, his skills 
sharing his know-how with his son, who learns it. Jesus, Jesus learns to be a carpenter from his son, from his father. Now, one other thing that really struck me in the book is, um, and uh, I'd like to get into uh, St. Francis and the Cretan in a second, but there's a nativity diptych by Fra Angelico that contrasts Joseph keeping watch at the nativity and the apostles sleeping at the agony in the garden. And that really Ah, struck me. It's, I don't know why, it's just that contrast of, you know, the steadfastness of Joseph. I, sh- I found that very, yes, I, I, I remember finding that and seeing that and just realizing how much nuance. Now, Frangelico is a very special character. Frangelico was actually a priest of the Dominican order. He I think been offered uh he'd been offered all kinds of positions. I think even the Archbishop of Florence, he's very very obviously he's he's, he's recognized as the patron saint of painting. A very holy man and a man who as part of his Dominican charism, uh it was to understand so as to transmit. Now with most of the Dominicans as orders of preachers would do this through their sermons. In the case of Frangelico he does this through his painting. And I think it's a remarkable reflection, somewhat unique um, that that Fra Angelico of the Order of Preachers decided to contrast, especially in this moment when there was a lot of imagery paralleling St. Peter and St. Joseph, to have this vigilant Joseph and the sleeping apostles. So Jesus, Jesus is born, there is Joseph focused and awake, and uh, there, when Jesus is suffering in the garden, his apostles are all passed out. Uh, I was looking at that, and the first thing in my mind is, you know, the saying that a picture's worth a thousand words, and I'm thinking, you know, that is a perfect homily in two images, mm-hmm. and it just, this is why I find art so fascinating, and this is why I enjoyed your book so much, is because you look at these images, and you spend the entire book, you know, explaining some of these things, how they came to be. But you look at the images and they tell a story. And it's just fascinating to me. And I, like I said, I really enjoyed the book. And I urge our listeners, to, uh, as soon as it becomes available, to uh, give it as a gift. Give it to yourself as a gift. And again, we're talking to Elizabeth Lev about her book, Silent Night. Um, now, one of the other things you mentioned, uh, all of us have... You know, Cretius out, uh, most of us already have them out. A lot of us will put them out closer to Christmas. But this is something that came along much later in time. This is attributed to St. Francis. Oh, yes. The um, the the idea of the crash uh, is, is very much uh, part of the part of the work of St. Francis. St. Francis... Um, who was very, very devoted to the humanity of Christ at the point where he receives the stigmata, had also traveled to the Holy Land. And his his love of God, this, this tremendous love of Christ that, that, that really poured out into uh, imagining 
um, uh, holding what it means to hold God in, in his arms as a, as a child. And so he went to Rome and he spoke to uh, Pope Honorius about what he, what he was thinking about for a nativity celebration. And he, he arranged for a nativity in a place called Greccio, which was a very, very poor area. It was like his own personal Bethlehem, very simple people, very poor surroundings. And in this little town called Greccio, where he often went to kind of retreat prayerfully into himself, he arranged this Christmas event where he brought in an ox and an ass, and he brought in uh, uh, the people of the town. And Tommaso Celano tells us that during the course of the preaching of Francis, so Francis who wouldn't ordinarily have preached because he was Francis, because he was there, he was asked to preach, that, that in the intensity of his preaching, he, uh, the, 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 there, was, there was a collective vision of a child sleeping in the manger. And so the nearness, the closeness, the, the, the physical um, uh, uh, presence of, of Christ that people really hunger to feel, it, Francis made people see this in the Nativity. And it's a really beautiful reflection on this, that what had actually happened is that the idea of the Nativity was slumbering in people's hearts. People didn't really think of Jesus as, as, as a person, as someone that could be touched and, and held and, and, and smelled. And that what Francis did, what he ignited in his entire life, not only at Greccio, was this sense of the, the reality, the person of Jesus. It's, it's a very, very, very important thing in our spirituality, but it also had, of course, obvious, tremendous repercussions in art. And as a matter of fact, it will be the Franciscans who will insist on thinking about a Joseph who was the one who got to pick up and hold and snuggle and talk baby talk to and have baby Jesus grab his fingers. The experience that Joseph had of the Christ child as, as a man, as a human being, is our entry into imagining that, that, that God made man in our own lives. You mentioned this earlier, the Hosen relic in Aachen, uh, and I had never heard of this before. That was absolutely surprising to me. But what I found so interesting is that the whole idea of the relic is that Joseph removed his pants and made the swaddling clothes out of this. And this is something, you know, you always assume that something Mary did. But again, this is that connection to Joseph that I found so surprising in art. I think it's a very important um, scene. It also leads leads us into looking at um, the adoration scenes very differently. So, for example, um, in the Hosen, the, the idea of Joseph taking the clothes off his own body, because it's all he has, and just cutting them up and giving them to this child. I mean, that is a true first necessity. That that's a remarkable relic to be the first relic to circulate for for Joseph. Then the other is the idea that when you put it, when you contrast it with the Magi, so the Magi are bringing these fabulous gifts, this gold, this frankincense and myrrh, we see all the glories, the huge parade. But then it helps us to think in terms of there's Joseph, who knows not bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh, but he's the one who you know, brought the first necessities, whether it was 
finding the place for Jesus to be born, whether it's you know, the clothes off his body. I mean, it, it, as a matter of fact, it, it kind of highlights his gift, his gift of himself, his gift of everything he has for the soul, sort of highlights it and exalts it over that of the Magi. And to me, that struck such a chord and relationship with the widow's might in the Gospels. Yes. Giving all you yes. had, but it's because that's what you had. And that, uh, you know, when I read that, uh, the thought gave, you know, I always wonder, you know, how much of this, you know, would have related to Jesus's understanding of the world around him. Yes, I think that's, I think that's a very good correlation between the two stories. Now, one other thing that you mentioned in the book is that, uh, you know, the connection with St. Joseph and the papacy, and you've already talked a little bit about this, but I found it interesting that this came about especially during the time of the anti-popes when we had basically three popes at one time and how important that image is to the papacy. It was a terrible time for the church. It, it really was after the, first of all, the papacy had picked up and gone to Avignon for 70 years, leaving Rome and leaving really the, the whole concept of the See of Peter and the successor of Peter that was under, that, that moved to Avignon was problematically undermining the idea of who is the Pope and what gives him his authority, if not that of being uh, the successor of Peter, who is Bishop of Rome. So that was that was one problem. And then, you know, upon the return of the popes, you have these cardinals who, in just in the midst of all of their self-interest, are electing one pope. Then they, you know, move a few miles out of town and they elect another pope. And then they get together and have a council and, and elect another pope. And what kind of leadership of the faithful is that? And so, in the midst of this, what, 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 in the midst of this, you know, three popes duking it out because they want to be, you know, the kings of Central Italy or whatever their pur- whatever their their purposes were, uh, we suddenly have a series of very serious pastors who step up and say, "Listen, you need to the the church, the the pope needs to husband his church." needs to nurture his church the way that Joseph did Mary. And so these are um, uh, uh, Gian Pirolini, who was a Franciscan, and Jean Gerson, who was the Chancellor of Paris, who really make these points of how how Peter and Joseph are very similar. God entrusts Joseph with the care and the and the upbringing of his son, and 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 Jesus entrusts Peter with the care and the development of his church, and that that is a deep and serious responsibility, and that the Pope should be looking to 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 Joseph as a role model, and that is why you have a great many images, particularly in and around Rome, of. Joseph and Peter, who are basically doppelgangers, they look exactly alike. So you look, <laughs> Joseph be doing something that's obviously Joseph-like, like you know, at the nativity, but he's dressed up like Peter. Now I can't believe we're almost at the end of our interview. Uh, only have a couple of minutes left, so uh, just briefly, especially as we come to the end of the year of Saint Joseph. How do you hope this book to help people to continue their devotion to St. Joseph? 
I hope that I really hope that people like St. Teresa of Avila. So one of the things I really hope is that women will discover uh, greater and deeper devotion to St. Joseph because he is so multifaceted and this wonderful devotion, the way that Saint, she, he, he was the guiding light of St. Teresa of Avila when she was, you know, reforming her order, opening new convents, this extraordinary woman really led by the example and the protection of Joseph. So I'm hoping that more and more people will, will feel comfortable to put themselves or to go to Joseph and then also to realize the incredible variety of the, the vast repertoire of intercessory power that this saint has. And then ultimately, I would, I would really hope that artists and patrons, potential patrons reading the book, would start thinking about what Joseph should look like in our age. If Joseph has developed a new look every single time the Church finds itself in difficulty, what a good time for us right now, whether it's crises in fatherhood, crises in labor, crises in, 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 in whatever we want to be looking at, how Joseph should look to us today and to go to Joseph today. Again, I want to remind our listeners, we're talking about Elizabeth Lev's book, Silent Night, A History of St. Joseph as Depicted in Art. I urge our listeners, uh, look for the book. Uh, I know the hard copies, uh, the hardcover's out, the uh, paperback isn't out yet, uh, but I'm assuming it's coming out fairly soon. Yes. Yes, I think it's imminent. All right. Then uh, I urge everybody, pick it up. Give it as a gift, uh, Christmas gift. Get to know Joseph better, especially in art. And I want to thank you very much for being on the show this morning uh, or this evening, as it is in Rome. And uh, I want to uh, remind all our listeners that next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, con when considering the many ways which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Round up.